Happy Friday evening, everybody. It's uh, January 15th, and we've got a special guest tonight. David Barton's going to be on shortly. And we're also at the end of the program. I've got an update on a friend of ours, Pastor Mike McClure at Calvary Chapel San Jose. He went into court today. Uh, he is facing, well, their church is facing over a million dollars in fines. Yeah. He himself has been personally fined, 25000 The assistant pastor's been fined. And uh, you're going to see the update from Pastor Rick, who's up there uh, ministering to him, supporting them. Uh, we are in a fight for religious liberty, and uh, you'll, you'll want to stick around for that. But more importantly, you want to stick around for David Barton. We've got a lot to cover tonight with my dear friend, especially as we're coming up to the inauguration on the 20th. But before we invite uh, David to come on, I do want to share with you that this Sunday, we've got Charlie Kirk and uh, Sean Foyt coming out. Uh, worship leader Sean Foyt, he's the guy who's traveled the country. He's just phenomenal. And Charlie Kirk, uh, both of those guys are coming out. And a number of pastors from across the country who have uh, faced persecution and some severe penalties, they're also going to be joining us. And I found out yesterday, uh, this book blew me away. It's one of my favorite books. I this book was referred to me by Pastor Ken Graves. It's the book that saved Western civilizations. Called uh, it's the author is Vishal uh, Magdawaldi. Oh yeah. Uh, take a look yeah. at this. The book that made your world: How the Bible created the soul of Western civilization. The title is the book that made your world, and it's Vishal Mag Magdawaldi. He's going to be here uh, with his wife. Oh my God. I was totally blessed by that. And Charlie Kirk, I, I gave him. Or he, he got the book from Ken. He devoured it. And then Vishal's also come out with another book that's even better. So start with that one. Uh, just take a look at it. Get that book. Order it. Read it. It will blow you away. That's all I got to say about yeah. that. It'll blow you away. Well, and you just said Charlie's going to be here Sunday. So 9, 11, 1 o'clock. You always promise that 1 o'clock will be the open one. I don't think we can make that promise this time. Yeah, it's it's gonna like be you're going to have to be full all three. So yeah, arrive early. Arrive early. Yeah. All right, uh, so we're going to end at the top of the hour, and we still have nine minutes to show you the, the update from San Jose. So I want to get straight to our special guest. Uh, many of you know him. He's a prolific author. He's a historian. He is my friend. He is a, I think he's one of the most underutilized gifts in yeah. America. Yeah. Uh, and he's coming to us from the great state of Texas. So welcome, my dear friend, David Barton. Hey, How guys. You Good to be back with you guys. Oh, you too. And there you are in the schoolhouse with all the, the works of antiquity. I, as we were talking earlier, David, and, and especially just looking at history behind you. And, you know, I, I think for both of us, you're just a tad bit older than I am. And I'm guessing because you have a little bit more wisdom on your head than I do. But I, <laughs> but I, I'm, I don't know that you and I in our lifetime have faced anything like this, have we? Well, I guarantee you we have not in our lifetime faced anything like this. Um, especially internally. You have to go yeah. back to previous generations. Um, about every 60 to 70 years, something like this comes up internally. Um, but I would say that th this is, that there, there's been nothing like this in the 20th century. Um, you know, even though we had conflict in World War One, we all pretty much had a similar worldview at that point in time. And sure. so we started splitting worldviews. In the 1920s and 1930s, became a little more polarized, 1940s, 1950s. Uh, we saw the, the civil rights crisis of the 40s, 50s, 60s. So we've had stuff, but it, it's been a good 60, 70 years since we've seen anything like this. And you did, a, you did a sermon, and David connected me with it a couple of days ago. I think it was called Run to the Roar. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. Amazing. And we, we'll put it in the the notes because it's worth. Yeah. We'll, we'll give you a link going. to the sermon. You guys yeah. got to watch it. But David, in that run to the roar, you you talked about revival and the things that are necessary for revival. And even in our talk prior to starting the broadcast, uh, you and I were we're we're taking a hard look at some troublesome data that's coming out. I mean. Uh, you were talking to folks at the state house. We're watching of a revamping of of history curriculum. Cover all the heavy stuff, and then take us to where the hope lies, if you would. The heavy stuff is we've never had a nation as at risk as it is now, because even though we've had conflicting philosophies, we've never been as uneducated and as unthinking as we are now. Yeah. Um, I mean, you just look, even at form of government, uh, 75% of college students want socialism, 69% of millennials, and 42% of all Americans want socialism. Now, the problem with that is 5,800 years of recorded history, there's not a single instance in history of where socialism brings you individual liberty and prosperity. But it's all right. We can do it. Well, you know, our friend George Barno said, I I wonder if they know what they're talking about. And so instead of using terms, he took that 42% to say they support socialism. He went back and asked them an additional 47 questions. He said, do you support greater government regulation of businesses? Do you support greater government ownership of private property? He went through all the things socialism does. And at the end, only 2% of Americans supported socialism, but they didn't know what it was. And when Mm -hmm. asked, what is socialism? The answer to what is socialism, the top two answers on what is socialism is, it means sharing with others, and it means being social with people. I guess well, I'm a socialist. You know, that's I, how they, I, te- I like that's how they teach it in church. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what we find is we no longer know what we're talking about, and so people are remaking words on a regular basis. Um, I, I mean, I can go through so many things. Only one out of a thousand people knows what the freedoms in the First Amendment are. You can't protect what you don't know. You can't exercise what you don't know. Um, you look at immigrants who come to the United States, if they came here from, I don't know, Antarctica, Arctic, anywhere, and have never heard of the United States, so they got here and said, I really like this place. I think I want to live here. What do I have to do to live here? Well, you need to take three-month course, immigration test. You can do that. They do that 92%. It's a 100-question test for immigration. 92% of immigrants pass the immigration test, uh, and they do, it, they do it with an upper 90 kind of score. So right. they took seven states, they took high school seniors who've lived there their whole life, and they gave the immigration test to high school seniors in seven states, only 7% could pass the test. So if you lived here your whole life, you don't even know what this country is about, you know nothing about it. We recently commissioned a major national poll of state legislators, uh, hadn't been done in 50 years. So we did this poll to see what they know. Well, what we found out was we wanted to contrast legislators to the public. How much do they know? We found out that 24, only 24% of Americans can name the three branches of government. 48% of legislators could not name the three branches of government. You're going, oh my gosh. So, you know, I, I can keep with the depressing numbers, put up all the razor blades, no reason to kill yourself. It's going to work out okay, <laughs> or it can. But it, there, it is really, it's bad now. Uh, America, we were number one in the world in literacy. We fell to number 67 in the world in literacy. There's only 23 industrial nations. We're down in third world territory. For the last 15 years, 19% of all American seniors have graduated as illiterate. They can't read. 19% of our seniors. So Mm. you can't can't survive this kind of stuff over two, three generations. So that's that's what's out there. Most people are unaware of what's out there. 
we're so happy with our social media and our, our, our games that we can play and all the things we can do that we're just unaware and we're not asking questions. We're not thinking about things. We're not asking about whether the 1619 project is right. What are the facts? The 1619 the year. We, we don't even ask the questions anymore, which goes to Rob, what you kind of led with at the beginning. Um, we have a network of about a thousand state legislators across the nation, all 50 states. And in that network, we got a, a contact last week from a legislator in Minnesota who said, you know, every 10 years here in Minnesota, we have, we revive, we look at our, our standards to see if we need to change things in textbooks. He said, so this is the year that we look at history and social studies. We got the new standards back and the new standards are proposing that in Minnesota, they remove everything related to the American Revolution, everything related to the Civil War, everything related to World War One, everything related to World War Two, and everything related to the Holocaust. All of that to come out of history in Minnesota. I mean, so you just, there's no nation ever survived with that lack of historical knowledge and civic information and morality and et cetera. So that's the bad news. So yeah. what can I do to cheer up your day? <laughs> well, let, let me let me share with you that when I was with Charlie on the live broadcasts uh, in early January, especially with the Georgia returns and then what happened at the Capitol, the comment was a nation that doesn't have a shared history will divide. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I, I would say not only shared history, I'd say shared moral basis, uh, right. because right now we are 58 percent of Americans believe there is no absolute moral truth of any kind that they can make their own moral truth. <clears throat> If you can't get 51% of a nation to agree certain things are right and wrong, which is a law, a law does that. A law says certain things are right and wrong. If 58% don't agree that our laws are right and wrong and that they can make their own rights and wrongs, you cannot survive unless you can get at least 51%. And we don't have that right now. We're at 42%. Yeah. So with that being said, have there been times in history where it's been this ominous yeah that you can there have, been, there have been it, it hasn't always been this widespread in the population but it doesn't have to be uh, if i can take you back to the time of the american revolution or it's actually we call it the revolution it was actually the american war for independence the founding fathers called it the american civil war now we think of the civil war as being in the 1860s over slavery the founding fathers called this a civil war not a revolution not a war for independence and at that point in time, if you look at where where America was, um, you only had roughly 25% of Americans that supported independence. So those represent the, found, the founding fathers, they represent about 25% of America. When we look at them today, we think that was the whole country back then. It wasn't. They were one out of four, and they had to turn that around. So they did. They used a lot of, of great ways of, of messaging, communicating, networks, et cetera. So you had actually one out of four Americans adamantly opposed to independence, and you had two out of four that didn't care as long as it didn't affect them. And that's right, kind yeah. of where we are today. We have very polarized sides, and we have a big middle that it depends on who makes the argument as to where they go. So we're kind of there. It's interesting that even though 25% of Americans supported independence, only 9% participated in any way. So you're right. talking about one out of 11, essentially. And so I would say that it doesn't take that big of a thing to turn it around. It does take a mindset. And so just, David, with what you mentioned about that sermon on Sunday, let me share a couple of things on mindset that I think are really key. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is we live in a culture today 
where that I don't care whether you're left or right or whatever, you've got your news sources. If you're left, it's going to be MSNBC, it's going to be CNN, it's going to be ABC, NBC, CBS. If it's right, it was Fox, still a lot of people at Fox, but it's Newsmax, it's Epic Times, it's Victory, it's all these different things that are out there. You've got your news source. And, and so those, those news sources come in and whatever it is, you're watching that and that's what you see 24-7, 365. You hear absolutely nothing about what happened in Yukon, Oklahoma, or Jacksboro, Texas, right. nothing about Mobile, Alabama. You only get national news. And as a result, you see national problems. And quite frankly, we just saw the election, everything that happened over the last two months. I'm fairly well connected in Washington, D.C. Got lots of close friends in the White House. No Supreme Court justices. Um, there are dozens of members of Congress that we're texting and talking all the time. You know what? As many contacts as I've got, I cannot make I cannot make the Supreme Court pick up the cases we want to see. I can't make anything different in the White House, and I can't make Congress do anything different. And You're so right. what happens is people feel paralyzed. There's nothing they can do except get frustrated and charge the Capitol and yell at people and say things. You know, you, you get frustrated. So what's interesting is go back to the American War for Independence. Take the first four battles. It's Lexington. Northbridge at Concord, the road to Boston, and Bunker Hill. In none of those battles did anybody contact the national commander-in-chief and say, hey, you need to come in and save our town, come in and save yeah. our community. Yeah. Every single one of them said, they're doing national stuff. We got our community. So what happens is Reverend Jonas Clark gets 70 guys from his church at Lexington to face the 700 British. That's the Battle yeah. of Lexington. The Northbridge at Concord, you had... Reverend William Emerson, with 300 of his men, faced the 700 British at Northbridge and turned them back. On the road back to Boston for the next five hours, 19-mile march, you had the Reverend Payson Phillips, Reverend Benjamin Boss. All these pastors had their churches on the road to Boston for 19 miles. That's what road Boston battle was. You get to Bunker Hill, Reverend Joseph Willard said, I've got several companies in my church. Let's go over to Bunker Hill. Everything was, you're not going to do that in my community. We're, we're going to take care of it. And so whether it's those battles, what's the Battle of Cowpens, or whether it's the Battle of Kings Mountain, we won the American War for Independence because we won all the local battles. Only right. a couple times. It was not many battles that George Washington had to step in from the national level. The national guys stepped in when the local guys couldn't do it. So the, the Yorktown, although there was lots of militias there, you had the Pennsylvania militia and the Virginia militia, Yorktown, you know, Monmouth, a few places in Washington was really significant. Other than that, it was local battles. So we got to stop thinking nationally and start saying, you know what? If we win our local battles right here in this community and if people across the, 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 the area do that, that's how we win the nation. We think of a revival in terms of, of like the first great awakening, George Whitfield. Yeah, but what we don't pay attention to is all the local revivals that made the national revival. He didn't get in arenas where he had 100,000 people. What he did was went town to town. 80% of all Americans heard him preach a sermon because he went into every little bitty town, every little community, every burg, every village. And then on top of that, you, you had people like uh, Reverend, uh, Reverend Jonathan Mayhew and Samuel Cooper up in Boston. You had Gilbert Tennant in Philadelphia. You had Samuel Davies in the Valley of, of Virginia. It was all these. That's what a revival is. We keep thinking we're going to have a national revival. No, no, no. Let's have local revivals that turns into a national revival. So our thinking has to change. It has to go from the local up. You always get healthiest from bottom to top, not from the top down. The second thing I'll point out is we have to think individually. We keep thinking about professionals. And let me give an example. Uh, back at the time of the founding fathers, 
Christianity was a distant second religion in the world. Number one by mm. far was Islam, big time. Jeez. Right now, out of 7.5 billion people in the world, 32% profess Christianity, 21% Islam, 14% uh, Buddhist, 7% Hindu. So America, is, our Christianity is by far number one religion in the world. Now, we've been working on this for 2,000 years since Jesus was here. We are so serious about this. We have poured hundreds of billions of dollars into evangelizing the world. We are so serious about it. We pay professionals. We have full-time pastors and evangelists and missionaries. We're doing this full-time. I mean, it's a big deal. How about a radical thought? Jesus and the Great Commission told his disciples, every one of you needs to disciple someone. If we took the 32% of the world as Christian, and everybody this year said, you know, I don't care what happens in the world. I don't care what happens in America. I'm going to find one person and disciple one person. I'm going to get one person to think differently. I'm going to get them to the Lord. Then I'm going to teach them how to think and how to think biblically and how to study the word and how to think about economics and morality and how to think about education. I'm going to get, so all I'm going to do one year, find one person. If we did that at the end of one year, we would have 64% of the world being biblical thinking Christians. If we did that for two years, 100% of the world would be Christian. We could evangelize the whole world in two years if everybody just made a project to take on one person. So we keep thinking, we need a crusade. We need 100,000. You know, we'll take up an offering to send missionaries to Africa. They have a crusade and 15 people show up. We go, that was a waste of money and time. No, no. All you got to do is disciple somebody. Jesus didn't change the world with the tens of thousands. He changed the world with 12 guys he spent time with. And so Amen. every Christian gets that mentality of I'm going to find one. And I'm going to disciple one. And, and that's all I'm going to do this year. I, I may not win any other battle. I'll win that battle. My gosh, in, in two years, this whole thing has turned around. So it's doable. I mean, it, it is very doable. Yeah. We just got to make the commitment to stop being focused on the national, start being focused on the local, and start doing individual things. Stop waiting for somebody else to do it. Yeah. yeah. If, if you were to ask me uh, what happened today in the news, I have no clue. Yeah. I, I haven't watched a lick of news in three or four days, and I've yeah. never been happier. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, my time with my family's better. Uh, I've gotten stuff done at, at work that has gone, you know, I just, I just haven't tended to it like I should. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things where I, I can change what's around me and my sphere of influence. And then to spend quality time with people to impart to them instead of being so disjointed and going in a thousand different directions that you're, you're so watered down, you're worthless because you want to maintain the following. And I just, I, that's just not it anymore. I want to take what's in front of me and pour everything I have into it and try to, you know, follow that model. Yeah. There's also seems like Billy Graham had a thing where they started doing more national news and he's sitting there going, I can't do something about the war in the Middle East, but I can do something locally. But it also started hurting you from a hopeless standpoint. You start to feel hopeless because you can't do something 10,000 miles away. I can do yeah. something that's 10 miles away. So, and, and those are the things we can focus on, we can do. Now, once we do that, we have to definitely be engaged. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll just take, here I sit in Texas. This is no news to you guys in California. It's big news to us in Texas. Six years ago here in Texas, we, Texas, Fort Worth, Texas, a city, 800,000 people. That was the first place in the nation that says, hey, let's not have genders anymore when it comes to bathrooms or locker rooms. It was Fort Worth, Texas. 
Independent School District School Board said, let's have no genders in, in bathrooms or locker rooms. Then President Obama said, that's a great idea. Picked it up. The Department of Education federally said, if you get federal dollars, you cannot have you cannot have gender separate bathrooms or locker rooms in your schools. So we went through that for a number of years, but it came out of Fort Worth, Texas. Now, here's the deal. Fort Worth, Texas, 800,000 people. We looked at the school board. The president of the school board who did that policy received a total of 1,182 votes out of 800,000. So we looked in his district. There was a single evangelical church there that had 3,000 adults in his district. That guy is only there because the church had checked out of everything and because Christians had checked out of the community. Every battle starts at the local level. And so for us to think biblically, we say, you know what? I can't win D.C. I can't win Supreme Court cases, but I can win my local school board. I can win a city council. I can win the utility district. I can win what's going on with ordinance. We went at that level. And again, that's Jonas Clark at Lexington taking his guys out and winning the city or, you know, fighting for the city. That's the stuff where we can't check out. of. You know, there's a lot I can't do at the national level. We have to engage on the local level. Do you uh, are you familiar with J. Edwin Orr? He was he's one of the foremost historians on revival. I uh, went to Oxford. He also uh, got a, a, a Ph.D. from UCLA, I believe, as well. He had multiple uh, doctorates. But he, he, uh, he did the historical understanding of revival throughout the world, including America. He used to work with Billy Graham and, and the Billy Graham Association, and he's since passed. He's gone to be with the Lord. But I became familiar with his writings. And when he took a look at the, the three major periods in American history, whether it be the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Civil Rights Era, he noticed, and including even World War II, he noticed that prior to, for example, the Revolutionary War, uh, the church was in decline, alcoholism was rampant, uh, seminaries were liberal, it, the, the church was in, in, a, in dire straits. And then an awakening occurs, as you pointed out with Whitfield. And, and then there's an education component that goes along with it that our founders experienced, and you talk about Jonas Clark, and you can also add to our viewers that uh, every word in the Declaration of Independence was preached in a pulpit before it got written down. I mean, these are sermons that were preached in pulpits long before the Declaration of Independence was written. And this caused this this awakening and revival caused this term uh, this this time of trial, which created a birthing of a nation 244 years now. And you look at George Washington; he was seven and a half years in endless combat. And now, you know, all the other guys, Hancock and Benjamin Franklin, they, they were all back in nice digs and, you know, bed sheets. And he was on the battlefield seven and a half years straight. And, and they were down to 2,500 soldiers at Valley Forge before the Battle of Trenton. And, and they weren't going to, it was just so critical. But it's those moments of awakening and revival that allow you to endure the moments of hardship in order to birth um, a new work. You want to yeah, add to that? Yeah, let me let me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to add to that because I think you only got a little bit of the story. Let me add some more to it, and I don't I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I'm going to pile on in the sense that okay, let's recognize that the first Great Awakening went from 1730 to 1770. That's 40 years. 
The Second Great Awakening runs from 1801 to 1878, 77 years. Sometimes they call it the Second and Third Great Awakenings. Uh, the turn of the century revivals, 1880 to 1910. You, you look at all the stuff that, that goes on, you're talking decades. A revival spans decades. And not a, one of those guys, Charles Finney didn't know he was in a revival. Whitfield didn't know he was in a revival. Nobody knew it until after it was over. And historians looked back and said, hey, let's call that a great awakening. Because at the time, it was not a revival to them. There's several right. reasons it stands out. It was miserable for Whitfield. Whitfield's biggest opponent were other Christians. Pastors told their congregations to go to Whitfield's meetings, get up in the trees over him and pee on him and defecate on him. Throw potatoes at him, throw rocks at him, throw cabbages at him, pound him. They wouldn't let him speak in the church. It's interesting. Every single revival we've had, the church has been one of the greatest opponents to it. It's been the, the, the professing Christian people who take on the other Christian. And a lot of it's new wineskins, old wineskins. You know, we've never done it this way before. Whitfield's doing something we've never done. But when it was Charles Finney, and he's getting the preacher saying, you got to take a stand on slavery. Slavery is wrong. And he just got his brains beat in by all the other Christians. You can't get in politics. You can't get involved with that. You got to stay out of that. No, I mean, it, it, it is really bad internally. And then right. it's a lot of work because you have a lot of opposites on the inside. So, you know, I've been in both politics and church. I served in church, a lot of church staffs back when ordained minister. And my motto was, I don't need enemies. I've got friends. And it's yeah. because my friends attack me worse than my enemies do. Even now with what I do at Wall Builders, my greatest opponents are professing Christians. It's not the secular guys, nearly so much of professing Christians. So in addition to all the stuff that you mentioned, Rob, let's throw in the fact that when you get into a revival, you got fights all over the church. And usually about three-fourths of the way through the revival, the church gets a mentality, they change, they get on board, and they take credit for the revival. Well, they fought yeah. it three-fourths of the way through, but they take credit at the end. So in addition to the, as you said, all the, all the conflict, all the hard stuff that went with it uh, beforehand, it's during it as well. And by the way, revivals killed Whitfield. The last two years of his life, after he would preach, he'd go off the side and throw up his guts and spit up a bunch of blood and cough and then get back on his horse, go do the next meeting. It killed him. I mean, it was not easy work for him. And it can't be. When, and, and, you know, take Francis Asbury. He rode 300,000 miles on horseback. Tell me how much fun that is, preaching across America on horseback. No covering over your head for four seasons, all the way. So, so anybody who thinks revival is going to be a relief and a breath of fresh air and a time to relax, you have no clue what it is historically. And, Rob, as you pointed out, so I'm just piling on to what you're saying. But it, it's even worse than, than what you made it out to be. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But I'll take it. Uh, yeah, you know, I'll and 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 it, and it turns the corner. I mean, when you had what was a, a 26-year-old preacher who sees a woman refusing to get to the back of the bus, Rosa yeah. Parks, and and he's inspired by her, Reverend uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, and then he engages by that inspiration. His life was a living hell, and the, and the church was the one that dumped on him the most. Yeah. And they exposed all of his shortcomings and his failures, and they thought that that moral pietism and the virtue signaling would justify their apathy or inactivity. And, and really, the church should be on the front line of all of this. Yeah, his letter from a Birmingham jail, when you recognize that that's a preacher talking to other preachers, oh my gosh. Yeah. We have, uh, I was helped do the, the, I do help do a lot of social studies standards across the nation. One state, I won't call it by name, 
But when we when we started talking about that and the letter from Birmingham jail, et cetera, uh, I said, let's make sure that when we talk about Dr. Martin Luther King, we call him the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And they said, oh, you can't say he's a reverend. I said, wasn't he? Yeah, but you can't say that. He was a pastor of a church. We can't call him a reverend. No, no, no. You can't put that in textbook. Is it? You just had the kids read the letter from Birmingham jail, and you're not going to tell them that was a pastor talking to other pastors. No, we're not. I mean, it was just, it's, it's unbelievable how how we kind of glossed that over and made it something it wasn't. But it was pointed at the church, and it was in the face of the church. And you're right, Rob. It was it was the church and professing Christians that, that was the hardest part of him. But now we look at it as if all, all Christians were on board back then, all churches were on board, and it's just not. It, but that's all right. Look how it changed the nation. That's the, that's the cool thing about revivals. They always make a, a shift in the nation. And Dave, even going back to, to something you mentioned, one of the things that, that I think is not recognized well enough is the passing of the mantle from Elijah to Elisha. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because what you have in every revival, they take the time to take the millennials of their generation and get them thinking right. Uh, because the millennials in every generation they don't think like the others because they don't have the experience. They have exposed a lot of the stuff. It's just not there. And so when you take, I mentioned the Reverend Samuel Davies, he's considered the greatest pulpit preacher in American history. And he's preaching in, in the valleys of Virginia, in the rural areas and revivals going. And there was this little kid, I'm sure he's a pesky little kid, just hanging around him all the time, just kind of at, at his robe and just always there. And the kid grew up and learned all the stuff that the Davies did. And the kid's name was Patrick Henry. And Patrick Henry said, I learned all my oratorical skills by attending church and listening to him and watching him. And then John Quincy Adams, he points to the Reverend Samuel Cooper, who was the big guy in Boston at the time, who spent time. He took the time to spend time with this little kid. And John Quincy Adams who's undersized anyway. And he becomes a president and congressman and senator and everything else. And, and, and you've got a Gilbert Tennant in Philadelphia took the time with a little kid there, a little orphan kid. Turns out to be Benjamin Rush, sign of the Declaration, who just revolutionized the country. So there's this transgenerational element that goes with Elijah, Elisha. You gotta take time to, to mentor the next generation and pour into them. And so the, the stats right now, and, and I, I think I can statistically prove that America's in a revival. Now, nobody mm -hmm. agrees with that because we think every problem is supposed to be fixed in a revival. No, 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 that's not the way it works. But what I'd point to is, is polling right now, our generation, no, excuse me, the entire nation has now become pro-life as a nation. We're 51% pro-life. That's good. We finally mm -hmm. have broken that, that threshold of, of the 51%. The next generation, the millennials, are 72% pro-life. Now, this is amazing because Jesus said every student, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. How did they get to be 20 points more pro-life than everyone that teaches them? How did they get to be 20 points more pro-life than their parents and their teachers than the culture? And I go back to Judges 13 on this, because in Judges 13, you had the Israelites under the oppression of the Philistines, and they're crying out to God. For years, they prayed, God, essentially give us a revival. We need the culture change. We need the Philistines pushed back. We can't worship you. We can't live our life according to your word. This is not good. And so in verse 5 of Judges 13, it says that God heard their prayers. He sent an, an angel to tell them, I've heard your prayers. I've answered your prayers. The angel went to a guy named Manoah and said, Manoah, God's heard the prayers of his people. He's going to deliver this people. Here's how it's going to work. Your wife's going to get pregnant. And 20 years from now, that kid's going to be the national deliverer. 
Whoa, I thought you said you answered my prayers. Yeah, I'm sending you a new generation to get it right. So yeah. what's happened is God has sent us a generation that is thinking right on things like life. Now, they're, they're thinking wrong in so many other areas, you know, government and, and morality. That's where we've got to get in and say, hey, I'm going to dedicate myself to taking one of these kids that God has sent. That's the answer to our prayers as the next generation. I've got to help them think right in some areas they're not thinking right in now. This generation, the, the millennial generation right now, 57% of them are born into homes without a mother and a father in a home. Highest percentage in American history. They do not know what a good family looks like. And that's why this is the most unmarried generation in Napoleon history. We've never had a generation, millennials, who are less married than this generation because they've never, they've, never they've never seen it in front of them. Well, yeah, my and, gosh. And they say the birth rate's dropping, too, in, in regards to that. It is. The birth rate is dropping. And, and so they need somebody to help them think right because their instincts are right in so many areas, but they're getting picked off by bad education. And, and so we've got to step in and, and pick one. You know, pick one. Pick one Gen If you're a millennial, pick a Gen Z. You know, if, if you're a boomer, if you're a buster, pick a boomer. Whatever. Pick somebody younger than you and mentor them. And, and, and get them thinking right in areas like that, because that's the other part of revival. It's always transgenerational because it takes decades to change the way people think and act and behave and what they do. And that means you got to start training the next generation. That's a good word. Mm -hmm. I, I love that, David. So insightful. You, you had commented, uh, and, and I think this is timely, too, and, and I love how you bring the biblical illustrations in regards to it. You had commented, and, and I, I coined this term, and I'd heard it from someone else, so it's not unique to me, but I, I use this term called hopium, hope and opium, hopium. Uh, and, and, and here you have the nation, you know, holding on every meme that comes through that speaks to their, uh, their line of thinking or their narrative, hoping it's going to come true, and then they're devastated and devastated and devastated. And... And, and those are lies. And I said on Sunday, a rumor is just a lie with legs on it. And lies come from the left and the right. And, and I, I spoke on the prophets that would speak things to the people that had nothing to do with what God wanted to say to them. But you had pointed out what God did to these false prophets and what he did to the... No, no, you, you pointed out what, what God did to the folks that gave a bad report yeah. when they came back. And, and how the Lord doesn't look kindly on that. You, you want to share that with folks out there that profess the name of the Lord and participate in not fact-checking these things and scaring people with stuff that's just overwhelming? You know, let, let me back up to one before that, if I can, Rob. Uh, I, I, something the Lord really impressed on me the end part of last year, and I think it's where we are now, is it, it deals with the fact that very few Americans know how to think. We think we do, but we don't. We are learners, which means if I hear some attorney say it, if I hear some judge say it, if I hear the court say it, if I read it on a meme, if I hear it on the news, oh, I received that. And we have a system set up around two verses. We have a legal system set up around particularly two verses in the Bible. Uh, one of those verses is Proverbs eighteen seventeen that says one side sounds good until you hear the other side. So we have an adversarial legal system, whether you have a defense attorney and you have a prosecuting attorney. If we only listen to the defense attorney, we would turn everybody loose because there's no guilty person in America. Crime's never been committed here. If we only listen to the prosecuting attorney, we would kill everybody. We'd fry them all and yeah. put them 100 years in jail. And what we have to do is listen to both sides. And as the jury, we say, where is truth? 
and I'm going with the truth. And we recognize that right. both sides get it wrong all the time. And we don't do that as conservatives. We think if we hear it on the conservative network, it's got to be true. No. Ask the question, what is the other side of the story? Anybody who's got kids knows how this works. You know, they come home from school and says, here's what my parent, my teacher beat me today. No, that's not what happened. I'm going to call your teacher and get the others. Oh, no, you don't need to call the teacher. So, you know, the, the kids always come in with their version. Teachers got their version. The truth is between the two. And so we've got to get to where that we are hungry for truth. Now, here's here's what I really felt the Lord give me. And, and I, he didn't give it to me. He gave it to everybody. It's in the Bible. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In that passage, God talks about the man of truth and the man of lawlessness. And this thing is going back and forth between the two. And there's these two contending sides. And it's like the prostitution defense, if you want to. It's two arguing sides. Verse 10 is where it gets real interesting to me. It says, because they did not receive the love of the truth, because they didn't check what the truth was, it says, for this reason, God will send them a delusion and they will believe a lie that they might be down. And so what, what stood to me was, if you're not, if you don't check for what the truth is, then a delusion will enter. When you believe the delusion, you will act on a lie, and when you act on that lie, it will have high consequences. Yeah. You know, if you tell me that I can put my hand on the stove and it's not going to burn me, and I believe that, I, I, I believe the delusion. A lie is entered. I'm going to act on it, and I'm going to have scars on my hand for the rest of my life. And so, what Christians today don't do is they don't think through. Where did they get that? What is the truth? One of the great examples I use, Jesus, you find truth by asking questions oftentimes. Right. And, and Jesus asked more than 300 questions in the Gospels. He didn't answer many questions. He asked a ton of questions. And that's part of truth and finding truth. So going back to, to what you said, we get all these r reports and these rumors and we just respond to them. And when God sent or, or when Moses sent the 12, we call them spies. And that's a misnomer. They were all governors of their tribes. When when Moses sent the leaders of the children of Israel out and they went out to spy out the land, that's why we call them spies. They spied out the land. All they're doing is reconnaissance work. They come right. back and said, oh, my gosh, this is the biggest land we have ever seen. We got grapes here as big as, as, as you know, each grape is the size of a grapefruit or whatever. But 10 of them said, but the giants are bigger. There's no way we'll ever be able to feed them. And they gave a true report factually, but they gave it and it discouraged God's people. And so two, two of the guys, you know, Caleb and Joshua said, yep, there's giants out there. This is going to be fun. Let's go kill some giants. And, and so for them, it was not a discouraging report. What, what stands out to me is in the, book of Judge, in the book of Joshua later, Moses is now passed on. They had their 40 years in the wilderness because they wouldn't believe God. They got discouraged, believe a discouraging report. Then they go in, and Joshua and Caleb are talking. And Caleb, 86 years old, says, I want the toughest part here. I want the mountains. I want the, those mountains over there because that's where all the giants are. I want, I want the meanest guys you got. That's where I'm going at 86. And so at that time, Joshua recounts him and said, do you remember 40 years ago when we were here? He said, at that time, the other 10 gave a report that discouraged the hearts of the people. It said it made the hearts of the people melt, and some version says scourge. So what has always stood out to me is God does not like discouraging his people. And that happens when we believe rumors. It happens when we don't check the truth. It happens when we believe a lie, and it becomes a delusion, and we act on it, and then we get burned, and we get all upset at God, and we get bitter. I mean, there's so many ways that that acts. 
We saw it in this last election. There were so many things going on just because a conservative guy tweeted it, just because a conservative network said it. We were buying everything and nobody was asking. And now we're all discouraged. You know, we want to charge the Capitol. We want to. No, no. Let's back up and find out what truth is and go where the truth is. Hmm. Since our time's limited and it's two hours later for you. I'm just going to ask a personal request. Maybe the folks tuning in, including David, don't want to hear anything about it, but I do. Would Would you refresh my memory on how the pulpits in America first preached the Declaration before it was ever written? And what ministers were responsible for that? And where can folks find that information, those sources, to realize that pulpits are critical for freedom? Yeah. Um, Easy way to do that. A couple easy ways to do that. So let me tell the stories first. If you think about phrases, taxation, that representation, all men are created equal. They're endowed with their creator, certain unable rights, etc. That came from a sermon preached in 1670s by a guy named John Wise. He was a pastor in Ipswich, Massachusetts. Um, He two of his sermons were published in 1710 and 1717. And he's the guy who talked about we're created, we're endowed by our creator, there's certain inalienable rights, uh, taxation, representation, tyranny, all that came out of his pulpit. So what happens is in 1772, the Sons of Liberty took the sermons of John Wise and they reprinted them and sent them all over the country for Americans to think, get their thinking right. Let's read some sermons, get our thinking right. If you want to take the Declaration of Independence, it starts with 161 words. It sets forth six principles of government. By the way, every clause in the Constitution goes to one of those six principles of government. Right. It's a governing document. Then there's 27 grievances showing how those rights were violated. And then there's the concluding resolution that we we do this under God we, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. We mutually pledge our lives, fortune, sacred honor. Okay. Every single right set forth in the Declaration of Independence had been preached from the American pulpit prior to 1763. That's 13 years before the Declaration was written. All of those rights have been heard in the pulpit. So what we have at wallbuilders.com is we have 260 old sermons up online. A lot of the sermons that they used back then to to enunciate these rights. The old sermons have it. You you read old sermons like that, it's really astounding stuff. Uh, Happens, we just finished this book, The American Story. It goes through a lot of those preachers and what their preachers did. Just a quick story on, on John Wise. I mean, he is such a, a great guy. But John Wise took on the governor when the governor tried to take their rights away. The governor fined him and threw him in jail. The preachers piled on and kept him in jail. And he went through all sorts of problems. When he got out, he sued the governor, had a huge settlement. The courts ruled in his favor because the governor was tyrannical governor and didn't want a voice speaking that objected to him. And, and it's just interesting. He was a strong guy, so much so that when he was he's old, he had white hair down over his shoulders, had long hair back then. A young man, stocky young man, Captain John Chandler, who's a ship captain, came across the bay to Ipswich and looked up old man Wise. And he looked at him and said, I hear you used to be a really good wrestler. And Wise was standing there and said, yeah, I used to be. And he said, I challenge you to a wrestling match. And Wise said, no, not at my age. And, he said, and so he went back and forth and Wise said, okay. And so he got in the wrestling match, and as soon as it started, he picked up the captain over his head. He walked over to his fence, and he threw him over the fence out in the yard. 
And so this this tough young guy who thought he was so tough looked at this pastor. And after he saw the pastor, he, he said he got up, he brushed himself off. He looked at Pastor Wise. He said, Pastor Wise, I'll be on my way just as soon as you throw my horse over the fence after me. And it's like, <laughs> you know, he was he was a tough guy. Uh, his 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 guys in his church got kidnapped one time on a pirate ship and they couldn't get the guys back. And so and Sunday in church, one Sunday morning, Pastor Wise stood up and said, God, deliver them or let them rise up and butcher their killers. And they had a mutiny on board the ship and killed all the pirates and came back to church the next day. And everybody goes, oh, God answered his prayers. I mean, these guys thought differently. They weren't soft and squishy like we tend to be today. These sure. guys were men of God in a very real sense. That's a, that's a great insight. And thank you for revisiting that to, to refresh my memory. Um, and, and if there's anything that you want to share before we, we're going to head in and show uh, all the folks tuning in what occurred up in San Jose yeah. But anything on your heart these last few minutes that you just something that you just feel like you want to share? Yeah, the one thing I would say about revivals is when you think about our first great awakening, the second great awakening, most of the people back then were Calvinists. And I'm not taking a position. I'm just oh, telling yeah. you they were Calvinists, which meant they weren't really into evangelism because if you're going to get saved, God's going to save. It's not up to us. It's up to him. What they did in those revivals, they preached a practical Christianity. They showed you how to live your faith. Here's how you yeah. run your business. Here's what you do with your family. And people said, man, that works so good for your family. I want some of that, too. They became Christians by seeing how practical faith worked in people's lives, what it did for their business, what it did for their employers, what it did for all these different things. So in doing that, I would say what we need to do is be practical. And I learned a thing from John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams, so many founding fathers read through the Bible once every year. John John Quincy Adams said every year he read through the Bible, he would take a subject and read the Bible looking for other subjects. So one year he just did nothing but business. One year he did nothing but criminal justice. One year he, that's all he did. The whole year, he just takes notes on that subject. And and so you start thinking, my gosh, if I read the Bible and what it says about banking, you'll find place, things everywhere. If what it says about employee employees. And so trying to be practical is what we as Christians need. Uh, it's good to have a spiritual relationship with God, but we need to live it out around us and show other people how to live it out. And so I would, I would say make, making a practical Christianity, and, and Rob, what you just mentioned, John Quincy Adams, when he was in the legislature, he was huge anti-slavery. Now, by the way, take you through it. When he's eight years old, he's got his gun out with a Massachusetts Minutemen. Okay, they're in Massachusetts, eight years old. When he's 10 years old, he's the secretary to the ambassador to France. When he's 14 years old, Congress appoints him to the court of Catholic trade in Russia. When he's 16 years old, Congress sends him to go set up the peace negotiations to end the American Revolution. Then he becomes a diplomat under George Washington. At 21, George Washington said he's the best diplomat we got. He was a diplomat under his father, John Adams. He was a U.S. senator under Thomas Jefferson. He was a diplomat and appointed the Supreme Court under James Madison, turned the Supreme Court down, stayed a diplomat. He was the Secretary of State for James Monroe, and he became the President of the United States, sixth president. When he finished his presidency, he went into the House of Representatives. So imagine that a president, you know, imagine Obama or anything else. So in the House, he's anti-slavery, and he said 80% of the House was pro-slavery. And he said he couldn't get anything passed. They actually passed what was called a gag rule. It says you're allowed to talk about anything in the House you want to as long as it does not deal with slavery. And that was designed to shut him up. He didn't shut up. He kept presenting things on anti-slavery, and they get so ticked and so mad. 
They tried censure. They tried expulsion. They tried reprimand. They actually try ask people to kill him, get him out of the house. I mean, it was bad. And here he is, and he gets nothing done because they're not letting him pass any bills. And, and man, don't you get tired? Ten years. You can't even talk about it. And he kept talking, kept getting chewed out. And his whole philosophy was so easy. It, he didn't do it because he won. His What he said was, duty is ours, <laughs> results are God's. Amen. I do this Amen. because it's the right thing to do. I don't care whether I win or not. I'm going to do the right thing. And if we get into living our life that way and mentoring the next generation that way and getting engaged in local affairs, that I don't care whether we win or not. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to be involved and help people think right. We'll turn this country around. Yeah. That's a yeah. great word to end yeah. on, David. Yeah. You blessed me. Yeah. I, I don't know if anyone mm-hmm. else out there enjoyed it as much as I did. But you, it's certainly a, a, just a, a great blessing for me tonight. And I just want to say thank you, David. You bless me every time mm-hmm. I'm with you. Thanks, guys. It's always great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And um, we want to get you in person one of these days. Uh, it, they say you can only come to California if it's essential business. And mm-hmm. I just want to right now declare it's essential. So yeah. when you're ready, come on out. Uh, you, you let me know when, bro. I'm, I'm happy to come. I'm happy to push the envelope anytime I get the chance. All right. Well, let's 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 look at March. Let's let's push into the spring. That'd be great. Sound good? Love- All right. I'll, I'll connect good. with you. Thank you, Sounds David good, Barton. Bro. Bless you. Thank you. Good night, guys. Bless y'all. Bye bye. David Barton. Yep. Yeah. Just and, and just a storehouse of knowledge, yeah. and he just re- recounts it. Yep. You know, there's no notes in front of him. He's looking at the screen with our picture, our ugly yeah. mugs. It's not you know. Yeah. Not distracting him. (laughs) He just comes together with all of it. Okay, we did promise you an update, and uh, Pastor Rick was up in San Jose uh, assisting Mike McClure and the fellowship up there and doing his Kingdom X stuff and helping the staff there. And he was at the courthouse today. Um, And I haven't seen this video. It's nine minutes long, but I want to show it to you. And then at the conclusion of it, uh, we'll read the blessing and say goodnight to all of you. But take a look at the update from our sister church, Calvary Chapel, San Jose and pray for Mike McClure. Welcome to this edition of the Fireside Chat. I'm Pastor Rick Brown, and I'm up in San Jose this week. It's a uh, cool Friday morning. Things are just firing up here in the city of San Jose. And at Calvary Chapel San Jose at 10 a.m. today, they'll be going to court. They currently have uh, $1,600,000 in fines um, for simply meeting for church on Sunday mornings. Pastor Mike McClure has fines of 25000 personally uh, to his account, or against his account, if you will. And his assistant, Carson Atherley, has $22,500 in fines. All for simply loving Jesus, serving the Lord, worshiping, teaching the Bible, and loving God's people here in the area of San Jose. Over my shoulder is the entry doors to the lobby heading towards the sanctuary. And you can see a lot of paperwork back there. We'll go get a closer look. And that's not the only place. Uh, At the back side of the church, it's also like this. On the front doors of the office, it's also like this. Let's get a closer look. You look closer. These are health department violations. each with different dates that are on the front doors of the church. The fellowship here has uh, also put something on the front doors of the church next to it. And that's the Declaration of Independence. That's apropos, isn't it? Moving over to this part of the doors, more violations, all health codes. 
because of COVID-19. Also here at the office front doors, you see more, this looks like a, uh, there's one is a court filing, the others are just the, the county's paperwork. And here the church has chosen to put on the front doors of the office the Bill of Rights. As I come around to the back of the church, this is the back doors as you enter the parking lot from the back and all of the paperwork taped to the windows in violation. There's another Bill of Rights poster. Over here in the corner, even down behind the uh, shrubbery here, everywhere. But as I step back and pan around, this is the kind of trouble you'll get in in Santa Clara County if you want to get together and worship the Lord with and serve Him. Yet, for a deadly disease that is 99.8% or over, let's just back it up, 99% recoverable. This is the kind of violations you go through. They'll shut down your church, they'll shut down your school, they'll shut down your restaurant, they'll shut down your, um, your community, being six feet apart, with muzzles on your face. They're changing our culture because of a bad flu. Did you ever think you would see the day in the United States of America where a pastor would be drugged into court for having church services in violation of a really bad flu, COVID-19? Well, we know it's a reality in the United States of America today. 2020 and 2021 are stacking up to be years of unprecedented, historical and hysterical activities. Here we are, the Santa Clara Superior Court, where Pastor Mike McClure and Pastor Carson Atherley, his assistant, are being brought into court for violating a temporary restraining order. Please forgive me, I'm a guy with an iPhone on the street. That's the best I got, and I am not a trained cameraman. But I wanna bring you this story from here in San Jose, because you see, at this point, the health department has fined the church $1,600,000 in fines for having church, worshiping Jesus, and teaching the Bible each Sunday morning. Not only that, they're going after Pastor Mike and Pastor Carson personally, and they are charging them $25,000 and Carson $22,500. And they're both, really in hot water with the court system. Now, when you think about this, they've got legal counsel, um, Robert Tyler and his team are in there doing their best. And so we're praying for the best outcome that we could possibly get through this whole process. So uh, thank you so much for your prayers and tuning in to what we're doing. And we'll be getting some more footage for the rest of our live stream. We'll be getting back with you when they come out to see what's going on.
Go for it. All right, the hearing's that the hearing is not over. Uh, we have a lunch break. We're coming back. Um, it was interesting this time because uh, opposing counsel uh, made it clear that uh, monetary sanctions might not be enough. What does that mean? Does it mean that uh, they may be seeking to put our client in jail? I don't know. So uh, that's the status at this point. We have uh, more witnesses coming. testifying Thursday at 1.30. So we'll finally get to our defense. It's only been the prosecution side so far. So um, we'll go from there. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for your faithfulness. And I just thank you, Lord, for all these prayer warriors out here today. And I just pray, God, that you would hear our voice. Lord, that we're not here to try to, Lord, persuade the whole town to believe something, but Lord, we want you, Lord, to manifest yourself by your Holy Spirit through our lives, that we would be living testimonies, that we would be bold, Lord, to proclaim the good news of what you've done. Lord, give us boldness to be a light to the city, that they would see us, Lord, the joy we have, that we'd be able to give a reason for the hope that we have within us others have no hope. And so I thank you, God, ahead of time for what you're going to do. And we pray, Lord, truly for a revival, that you'd start within our own hearts and lives, that we would know what it is, Lord, to turn to you from our wicked ways, Lord, to seek your face. And Lord, we thank you that as we intercede for all those around us, Lord, that we really do want to see, whether it be the judge in the courtroom or the county or all these people that live around us, come to know you and understand your love and your goodness, God. They're not going to understand that until, Lord, you use our lives and ignite our lives to, to be set really on fire to shine through yeah. you. And we just pray that you do that great work, God. We, we give you all the glory and we ask that you go before us, Lord. Strengthen us. And we just thank you ahead of time for what you're going to do. We pray that you bring revival, Lord, that you just fill this, this even park next to us with people that would come to hear the gospel. Yes. Lord, that you'd raise up evangelists and, Lord, more to bring the gospel to this area. Lord, we thank you, God, for the country in which you placed us. We pray for the peace of it. And, Lord, we want to honor those laws as long as they honor you. Lord, we pray that you would use us to be the best citizens. And we pray that you go before us now and ask us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, that's uh, Mike McClure facing $1.6 million in fines, possible jail time because they've gotten tired of fining him. Uh, they spent the entire day giving their side of the case mm -hmm. without hearing a word from Calvary Chapel Godspeak, excuse me, Calvary Chapel San Jose. So uh, next week, 1.30, they're going to get a chance to be heard in court. So there you have it. And we're going to close by uh, giving you the numbers blessing. Uh, I know they put it up early because they were just tired of looking at my face, but that's okay. <laughs> Let me bless you all. And we're going to bless uh, Mike McClure and the folks mm -hmm. at uh, Calvary Chapel in San Jose. 
And this is for all of you out there. Look, I know David Barton's message was heavy, but the reality is, just like Mike said, it's time for revival. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to pray this upon all of you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So there you have it. Thanks for joining us. Uh, be in prayer. Support uh, Bob Tyler, uh, mm -hmm. Faith Freedom Coalition. I got to come up with that website. They yeah. never asked for a dime, but listen, they got to keep their families fed. And they're litigating. And, the, you know, that guy's a trained a attorney. He's up there doing it to help these churches. And, folks, if you think you're going to hold on to it uh, because these are trying times, whatever you think you're going to protect and not engage in this process, you're, you're not going to have it at the end anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. uh, we're all in on this one. So participate. Do something. All right. Well, that's it. God bless you guys. We'll see you tomorrow. Uh, not tomorrow night. We'll see you on Sunday with Charlie Kirk. Yeah. Well, we might broadcast it on Sunday night. But we'll yeah. set, certainly see you on Monday. We're gonna yeah. take, I'm going to start taking Saturdays and Sundays off. Yeah. But come this Sunday to hear Charlie and Sean Foyt. God bless you guys. See ya.